me, motherfucker. I'm the only one that's got my back. It's dog eat dogs. These are not no cats. There's cops in Michigan that can't even respond to the calls because the cars ain't got no gas. Great. Police don't have any fuel. You don't know if they'll arrive when you call them. The babies are starving. My girlfriend can't find a tampon. And yet somehow you and I are the problem. Somehow. I've never brought a gun without having my background scanned and approved. The only loophole I've seen on a gun is the one that you put a fucking lanyard through. It's not true that you can go to the store and just swipe your card and get a Glock and run. It's funny. The people that say that shit have literally never even shot one. Dumbass. Hey, Matthew McConaughey. Shut the fuck up. Just cause you murdered people on screen doesn't mean you know shit about guns, you dumb fuck. What? You worried about us? What about all of those violent movies that you played? How about you go talk to Alec Baldwin before you start telling me what to do, okay? You Valdi? I was horrified by it. That's your hometown. You were born right by it. It probably cuts deep and I hope that it does cause you work in an industry that glorifies violence. It's more your fault than it will ever be mine. Lord only knows how many crimes that you've influenced throughout your whole career cause I've seen you kill people plenty of times. Yep. What do you think is gonna cause a shooting? A YouTube video of a gun review or a Hollywood murder scene that seems so realistic it looks like it's from the news so next time that you want to point your finger with a stupid opinion and chime in with it remember it ain't me that they're trying to be like dog it's you that they're trying to mimic I feel way more safe in a place where the people are legally armed if something happens like a mass shooting I have a way less chance of being lethally harmed the criminal is gonna think twice if he knows everybody is a piece underneath their clothes and Mayor Lightfoot will probably tell you different but <laughs> have you seen Chicago and no before you ask I don't want to be like Canada either And I don't want to be like Australia I'm sick of everybody using them as the humanity meter There's a reason that they can do whatever they want To their citizens like fucking throw them in camp And there's a reason that our government doesn't even try that shit Cause they know that they can't If you don't think for one split second That if we didn't have our second amendment The government wouldn't overstep its boundaries And make us do shit even when we're against it You're out of your mind I don't give a damn where you stand or how or what you vote That's dandy and fine if you trust Uncle Sam But I for one fucking don't And why would I? What have they done? Give me a reason for me to believe them. They want to trade me a little security in exchange for a big-ass piece of my freedom. They don't want to take away guns because they care about you and they want to keep you safe at night. They want to take away guns because it's easy to control people if they don't have any way to fight. Hey, buddy, what's your little AR-15 going to do when the government comes to take it? Well, Ukraine started handing out rifles to all of the citizens when the Russians invaded. So what about that? I thought it wouldn't help. I guarantee that it'd be better than nothing. I hope it never does, but if the day comes, I bet that you're going to wish that you had something. This is the only country on earth where the people have real strength. And nowadays, with all the shit going on, it's the only thing that makes me feel safe. If there's anything that I've learned in the past couple years looking back at the pandemic, all of the shit that we have is fragile, and it can snap at any second. Fuck all of the politicians. I don't trust anything they say. Take the word gun out of gun control and that's all that it is at the end of the day. I don't give a fuck how crazy you think that I look or I sound when I say this shit. But our second amendment's the only thing that stands between us and a dictatorship. And as for the kids, I'm not a security expert, so I won't act like one. But I think that if we can send over $50 billion to Ukraine, we could surely spend that much or more or less here in our own country to fortify our schools and make them more secure so that every kid can get an education safe and sound. Place several trained armed guards in every school across America. You know, real men who won't stand by for 45 minutes in the hallway while a shooting unfolds in front of their own eyes. And pay them well, too. There's veterans that need the work. Why not protect our kids the same way that we protect you? Politicians are protected by guns. Celebrities are protected by guns. Every important person that walks this earth is protected by a gun.
But our kids, they're important. Just not as much as you. Now, that was some hard truth. I am a huge fan of that young man. I mean, (laughs) he's pretty genius. And I have to say, wow, they are coming for your guns. I mean, this is the only thing that's stopping them. And the only way that they can take your guns is by ensuring that you get done in for whatever it is they want you done in for. Um, I don't know. Get upset because someone comes and drags your kid out. Get upset because, I don't know, they're going to mandate you to take some poison. Whatever their choice of instigation is, this is what they want out of you. And that's why exact, this is why you shouldn't do it. This is exactly the reason why not. Let's kick it off with some good tunes now. I am a huge fan of Sicknicks. Uh, you know, he can <laughs> he can mash up any song you want. Uh, you know, I'm still trying to figure out, is he like Pakistani or Indian? One of the two. Um, he's got a really good ear uh, when he does mashups. I watch him sometimes on shorts and TikToks that he does and a couple people that actually go and watch him. Uh, so, you know, he's, he's quite talented. I just... Hey, Kind of shocks me a little bit, uh, just how talented he is. So today, you know, I wanted us to kind of talk about what's going on uh, in the world. You know, the think tanks are all talking about how big money Republicans actually hoped that in 2022, it would be the year that the GOP quietly pushed Trump aside. They had talks with the closest people and the closest confidants he had uh, in the hopes that, you know, he would be a uh, memory because they were hoping that Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, would come in and knock Trump out of contention for 2024. Uh, They have approached many of his closest people and while many claim that DeSantis ran in 2018 as, you know, how do they call it? Uh, and I quote, Craven Trump sycophant. Um, you know, he's pretty much come into his own and has attached himself to the new party that the GOP wants to sell you, which is pretty much fighting right now. Is it the turning point click party or is it another party? It's it's the most bizarre uh, move I have ever seen the GOP right now hanging on, you know, a thread to maintain its composure while the DNC has been dead. Right, It just exists to fill the gap. But it is pretty, pretty insane. You know, Cheney obviously was begging for Democrats to vote for her. Um, she lost. Um, and 
It's it's so interesting to see how she lost the primary. I don't know. Did she think that she was going to? Did she sacrifice herself for it? Who knows? But she um, became President Trump's top political target with her vote last year to impeach him. Uh, everyone else that did is out. But Cheney uh, would not bend the will of the ultra MAGA wing of the Republican Party, which is the one that I fear is pushing the narrative in respects to, uh, you know, defund the FBI. And it's um, and it's pretty interesting because a lot of things that I've talked about in 2018 and 2019 are now coming to the forefront. I mean, that's the way it works. It was going to happen. Uh there is so much confusion right now in the parties because if you ask yourself, what do I identify as? Am I a Republican? Am I a Democrat? Mm, I would say that the best way to answer that question is I'm not anything because none of them represent anybody really. I mean, except for the far right and the far left, I guess. But it's, um, it's pretty crazy. It is pretty crazy. Uh, they're expanding uh, their notions of what they want to identify as uh, in order to bring more people into the party. The Republicans are taking uh, the GOP is kind of taking defectors of the left as they're moving towards the left, uh, you know, their identity. Then we have the far right, which is pulling Republicans that are of common sense to like a more non-common sense area. Uh, it is a, it's, it's quite baffling. Watching it is quite baffling. Watching the interactions online is quite baffling. Now, um, one thing that's very interesting is that we're seeing an uptick in the, you know, uh, thought police. And like I said, this is a class action suit we need to take. We're all on lists and we don't know about it. And it's a secret list. And we want to know how much power this list has and why they're doing it. And this is a, a very important point to make. Thank you to the, uh, you know, porn stars that brought this up because it is very, very important. This is where we cinch our Internet Bill of Rights, uh, because when we have companies that try to identify as people um, and are pushing to, uh, how do I say, govern the governed space, cyberspace, it is a concern for all in regards to access for information, um, reach, conversations, being part of public discourse, the whole nine yards. So as we see, a lot is happening in regards to, uh, you know, the FBI raid and what could be happening and, you know, the J6, which is going to be coming back around, you know, until the indictment. Uh, we have Rudy Giuliani right now. The mayor is in Georgia and he's um, uh, testifying or being interviewed, I guess, um, for this Georgia scandal with fake electors, as they say, let's just see what CNN has to say, because that'll tell us exactly what's going on. He's live at the courthouse in Atlanta. Rudy, Rudy Giuliani is still in there. You caught up with him. You spoke with him on the way in. What did he say? 
Kate, he was defiant and exuding confidence on his way in to testify. This is a significant moment. If you remember, he was expected to testify last week before his attorneys filed a late emergency motion asking for a continuance because of health concerns. Ultimately, a Fulton County judge asked him to appear today, giving him plenty of time, he said, to get here by alternative methods. And on his way into court, I was able to pepper him with some questions, including asking him whether or not he lied before Georgia lawmakers when he spoke to them at least three times. He spoke to them three times, I should say, in the wake of the 2020 election. Mr. Giuliani, when you met with Georgia lawmakers, did you lie to them? We will not talk about this until it's over. It's a grand jury and grand juries, as I recall, a secret. (laughs) Do you believe President Trump is the ultimate target of this investigation? I'm not going to comment on the grand jury investigation. What do you think their ultimate goal is here? What what are you expecting to talk about here today? (laughs) Well, they they ask the questions and we'll see. Will you be cooperative? I mean, your your attorney in New York says you can't promise how responsive you'll be. Yeah, Mayor Giuliani. Just to remind us, it was Giuliani that spoke before those Georgia lawmakers three times in the wake of the 2020 election to spread conspiracy theories and baseless claims of voter fraud, claims that have since been proven to be untrue. But ultimately, he is here on a judge's orders. How cooperative he'll be to those questions from the special purpose grand jury. That's the big question. His attorney, Bob Costello, in New York, indicating that the D.A. is playing hardball and they know how to play hardball, too. Joining me right now, CNN legal analyst and former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers and CNN national security analyst Juliet Kayam. She's a former assistant secretary for the Department of Homeland Security. Jennifer, let's talk about um, talk to me first about Rudy Giuliani. What does today mean for Rudy Giuliani? Well, of course, we now know that he's a target of the investigation, Kate, which I think means he's going to plead the fifth and not actually testify today. In fact, he'd be foolish to do so. They're asking him questions in an investigation that they've already told him he may be indicted in. So that's not to say that he shouldn't cooperate, uh, but that would be a different process where his lawyers would contact the DA's office and set up a different meeting. But I think he's not going to go into the grand jury and actually answer their questions because their questions are about his possible criminal culpability in this investigation. So I suspect he won't give them much today. At the risk of sounding asking the obvious, Jennifer, the reason why you, you you would think he should plead the fifth is because, well, everything he's saying in there could be directly related to what could get him in trouble. That's right. I mean, a, a witness always knows kind of whether they've done something that they don't want to disclose. But in this case, he's been told by the DA that she knows, too. Uh, and so that suggests that for sure he should take the fifth and not testify today. Juliet. How valuable do you think Giuliani is to investigators? Oh, he's exceptionally valuable because uh, this case, I've always called the sleeper case, the, the fake electors case. It was It's sort of like the opening scene of Jaws. The, it sort of slowly begins to, to become a big deal and a threat, I think, to uh, the planning around um, undermining the election because this part, the fake electors, uh, and the consistency amongst all the different states, Georgia just is the, is the focus right now, but there's a, a, a numerous states in which it was the same exact language, uh, people signing it, uh, was intended or only would have worked if there wasn't certification on January 6th. So why wouldn't there be certification? Possibly because there was an insurrection or violence and, and they were unable to meet. So I think the ties between the, the fake electors, which, which looks like a legal issue, really does get to the strategy behind 
how would it have worked? So I think he's very important. He, I agree with Jennifer as always, you know, he's not going to speak, uh, but he did seem a little bit less, um, uh, I, I, I won't put words into his mouth, uh, but he's there uh, and he uh, is not ignoring uh, this subpoena. He's not ignoring the subpoena because, as you know, he had surgery and that's why he did not attend. But, you know, Georgia is a really interesting um, spot to talk about, I guess, um, elections. Because I'm going to show you guys what many people have missed. And it is the privatization of our privatization. I don't want to say privatization. That's the wrong word. I guess the ceiling of the ability for us to look at elections. And you know who is the best proponent to talk about this? Believe it or not, it's Brian Kemp. So let's see. This is something that I have that is actually going into evidence too, where Brian Kemp introduced issues that he had, but he actually set out the timeline for me. This is pretty amazing. And I'm making this public just in case. This was actually presented by him in 2016, 2017 uh, for forecast. I want you guys to just pay attention to this. He talks about critical infrastructure and DHS hacking attempts. I repeat, DHS hacking attempts. In other words, the federal government hacked their systems. So voter registration databases, he goes into his introduction to that, what registration activities they have, what election equipment they purchased, you know, the state of Georgia did in 2002, how it's maintained by the counties, maintenance by vendor and counties, and Kennesaw Center for Election Systems. He then talks about things that people want to talk about, which is the voter registration database and a web-based platform. That's a big no-no. And this is a big problem. The voting system closed, air-gapped, and certified. And then he talked about how the DNC and RNC systems, they're completely unrelated. Why do we say this? I don't believe that people understand that this Russia hoax was bigger than just targeting President Trump and trying to name him as an agent. I believe that was a byproduct of the scare. Remember, Barack Hussein Obama said that Russia was affecting our elections. They were not. In fact, it was your own government. It was the leftovers from the Obama transition team that have been taking hold of everything. So this story, this Russia hoax was not just about targeting President Trump and, you know, removing him from office. It was all about elections in the first place. This is what Hillary should have just uh, had gotten in and done. But unfortunately, some round person busted up their closet and they couldn't do it. But here he is talking about preparations for the 2016 election that actually began in 2014. Uh, he talks about the certification of election officials, you know, whatever his his job as secretary of state is. He points out and he talks about how the U.S. is seeking to protect voting systems from cyber attacks. This is where the Russian collusion thing came in in 2016. And it says we should carefully consider whether our election system, our election process is critical infrastructure like the financial sector, like the power grid. Jay Johnson told reporters in Washington 
there's a vital national interest in our electoral process. Now, this is where they make the electoral process a federal right. This is where they make it a product of the federal government to run. And this is in 2016, before Jay Johnson from a bunker, because he was a designated survivor, on January 6, 2017, declared that elections are part of critical infrastructure. On his own, of course. I mean, even though a lot of people, and it was bipartisan, to not have that happen. He further states that varied infrastructure and those different systems also pose a difficult challenge to potential hackers. It's difficult to identify a common vulnerability. That's because everybody uses different systems in states and they monitor things differently. But 2016 was where it all began. The full control began. That is where it all began in 2016. In fact, when you identify what critical infrastructure is, here Brian Kemp identifies critical infrastructure as a term of art and carries with it implications beyond the ordinary meaning of the phrase. Sixteen sectors have been designated critical infrastructure by the federal government. Chemicals, commercial facilities, communications, critical manufacturing, dams, defense industrial bases, emergency services, the energy grid, financial services, food and agriculture, government facilities, health and public health, information technology, nuclear reactors and waste, transportation systems, and water sources. The last sector to be added was financial services in 2009. Sectors can only be designated critical infrastructure by the president or the secretary of Homeland Security. No rulemaking is required. So they don't have to make rules. They just declare it and they just add it in. And this comes from a law that was passed when the Department of Homeland Security was created in 2002. So enabling statute. This is how they do it. This is how they do it. 6 USC 131 the Homeland Security Act of 2002. Here are the powers that this agency has. Prevents disclosure of information related to critical infrastructure. That's number one. If your elections are considered critical infrastructure, now, because they are in control of it, they can choose not to disclose any information. This is why we have a problem with our elections, because we're not allowed to see. Many will say they were fair and they were fine. Okay, prove it. Well, it's classified. Well, then it's not fair and free, is it? Then we have a problem right there. Let's play devil's office just supposed to trust you. Yeah, how's I not do that? Two, allows the department to audit and compel reports from entities within a critical infrastructure sector on the maintenance, development, and status of critical infrastructure systems. In other words, if, say, the state of Ohio has elections, all right, and it's considered a critical infrastructure, that means the Secretary of State has to hand over all that information, all that access to the Department of Homeland Security. Next, allows the Department of Homeland Security to review and publish best practices for system. So I'm the Secretary of State of Ohio. I'm running my elections the way I do. And what they are permitted to do under that law is to come in, take all my shit, and then tell me, no, you're going to do it like this because we said so. And then another another uh, section of it is deemed 
allows for grants to be issued to entities with critical infrastructure sectors for implementation of best practices, meaning now the federal government is funding your elections. They're funding what they need. They're giving them funds to be able to execute elections. Again, (laughs) taking away more power from the states and obviously with the obfuscation under the guise of, I don't know, Homeland Security Act of 2002, Patriot Act, whatever you want to call, whichever one they want to invoke, suddenly you're not allowed to know. And the last one allows the Department of Homeland Security, by the way, to conduct additional system testing in coordination with an entity or without permission for some entities, including penetration tests, cyber hygiene scans, etc. Allow that to percolate. They can cooperate with me, the Secretary of State, to come and check my systems, right? And they need my permission, or maybe they don't. They'll just penetrate my systems and hack them and do cyber hygiene scans, whatever that means, data collection, right? Uh, And implementing their own eyes or twinning streams, you know, without my permission. So they have the right to hack my systems, apparently. That's pretty interesting. Well, moving along, why seek to name elections critical infrastructure was the question. Unconfirmed threats against the election. Remember, it was Barack Hussein Obama that said that the Russians were hacking our elections. The Russians are hacking us. The Russians are hacking us. We all know that's a fake story. So under that guise, they actually federalized our elections. Hacks of DNC emails, Podesta emails, and WikiLeaks. This is why they're saying because those hacks happen, we have to conduct all the elections because that's the way it is. But there are no actual threats to the election systems that are closed systems within states. This is 2016. Remember, we're going back to 2016. This is where DHS, huh, get this, 48 states in 2016 had given permission to DHS to help them with elections. Again, I repeat, 48 states. 48 states gave up the rights the sovereign rights of a state to conduct elections in 2016. Now it's all of them, but we're talking 2016. So why is why are people opposing this designation? Because that gives broad federal power to the extent of which has been intentionally left vague by Congress. Duplicative, uh, duplicative of the role of Election Assistance Commission plays in regulating and securing the election system environment. Well, why do we have the EAC when we have the DHS. So now we have both. It doesn't make sense. The next one, lack of transparency for voters. Voters are not allowed to know how elections are conducted. They have no business in knowing the code. They don't need to know. They just need to trust that these career employees that are not elected, right, are doing their job. And you need to shut up because all federal agencies are for your benefit. So be quiet. And DHS employees are not election experts. There are many technologies unique to elections that they have not developed standard protocols on how to test. Well, I have to beg to differ that DOD actually created software for it. So I guess they probably have their own experts uh, to know how to manipulate that software. So I'm going to have to chime in on that one. And then they say lack of uniformity of voting systems across 50 states and over 5,000 election jurisdictions. The standardization of processes creates vulnerabilities. 
So one thing that people need to understand is that elections are conducted in different ways in, in different states. One, from state nuances to how they conduct them to picking whatever machines they want. And let's just say we go to pen and paper. Um, you know, obviously none of that can be hacked. And obviously if we're human counting I to ballot, we shouldn't have an issue, right? As long as we have, I don't know, money level, you know, just like we know how money is real, we can create, you know, ballots that are real like that. But if we start using the human element, you can't hack that system easily, right? You can probably put infiltrators, but they'll be caught. So, so the lack of uniformity on how it's done um, right now with electronic systems makes it really difficult for hackers because one state or one county uses this and this is how they operate and the diversity helps minimize effective hacking attempts, right? Um, which is a good argument, but I'm still of the fact we need human counting. So then let's go to the next. Who opposed... Who opposed making elections critical infrastructure? As you could see, it's bipartisan. Mitch McConnell, Harry Reid, Thurban, you know, the guy that actually gave the dossier to Mother Jones, uh, Paul Ryan, even Pelosi was against it. Josh Ernest, uh, Tom Hicks, Matt Masterson, Christy McCormick, Dennis Merrill, Jim Condos, John Husted, um, Connie Lawson, Tom Shedler, Matt Dunlap, Merle King, uh, and Brian Kemp. So all these people said no. This should, these are some of them. So it was a bipartisan pretty much hit saying, no, 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 no. We should not make this critical infrastructure because once it's critical infrastructure, elections are federalized, even if we don't say it, right? And so we go into the next slide where... He walks you through a timeline. I love this. This helps my case so much. So Secretary Kemp led the opposition to designating election systems and critical infrastructure. On August 15, 2016, he had his first call with DHS Secretary Jay Johnson. On August 25th, Kemp named DHS Election Cybersecurity Group, was named to the DHS Election Cybersecurity Working Group. September 8th, they had a first conference call with that working group. September 21st, a second conference call with that working group. On September 28th, Kemp testified before the U.S. House Oversight Committee in D.C. You know, I actually need to find that video. Let me mark that as a note. Need to find um, find Kemp September 28th, 2016 Oversight Committee. All right. And, and then on October 6th, he had his first meeting with DHS field staff ahead of Election Day. His second meeting with DHS field staff um, ahead of Election Day was done on October 11th. On October 20th, Kemp meets with Georgia Tech cybersecurity experts. October 26th, the third meeting with DHS field staff on Election Day. And October 28th, he had a call with DHS officials and NASS members. Now. His, uh, the opposition, because of widespread bipartisan opposition to designating election systems, critical infrastructure, DS, 
DHS Secretary Jay Johnson decided to reconsider moving forward with the designation. He reconsidered it in 2016 because there was opposition, right? So people were opposing it. It was bipartisan. He's like, yeah, okay, maybe we won't make it critical infrastructure, right? Instead, what they offered was um, they offered states who wish to participate in the option of receiving free penetration tests and, and cyber hygiene scans for their systems prior to election day. So DHS offered that. Georgia then refused participation in these tests due to already having protocols in place for their state where their systems and testing was done by private sector security providers. It was reported that 48 states accepted DHS assistance in scanning. However, this number has not been confirmed with informal surveys of several states. The number seems to be closer to 30. So not all the states allowed DHS to have free range on their election system. But 48 accepted it, but they're saying, according to what they know, maybe it's closer to 30. Now, there are two systems related to elections in the Secretary of State environment in Georgia. The voting system, where the ballots are actually cast, they're non-networked, air-gapped, never connected to the internet, certified and maintained by nonpartisan third-party KSU Center for Elections. What? Hey, Georgia, KSU Center for Elections, certified by the Election Assistance Commission. That didn't happen. Stored and used in each county with no crossover among you. That's not even happening. And there are no credible threats against it. I think this whole paragraph is kind of bullshit. But, you know, he's the Secretary of State. He's not going to talk shit on his own, you know, unit, right? And then the voter registration system. It's a system that holds voter information only used on Election Day when you check in, maintained on servers with certain things. So it's free range. Anything on a server is hackable. So let's move on. So all your voting data is there. Next. Next, Secretary of State security measures. They tell you what they do, the protocols they have. Now, here's what DHS did to Georgia. November, oh, wait. Yeah. November 15th, 2016, network security provider notified Secretary of State security officer of medium level reconnaissance scan against outer ports on main Secretary of State side. November 15th to December 8th, internal investigation into the nature of the attempted intrusion into the system, including attribution of the origin. Secretary Kemp sends a letter to DHS Secretary Jay Johnson informing him of unauthorized scanning activity against uh, Secretary of State Georgia Systems, which was traced to DHS. Kemp demands answers. Secretary of State IT staff begins working with DHS to trace the origin of the attack. DHS suggests attack originated with an employee's misconfigured workstation. DHS also assured Kemp that they would recreate the event. Um, Spoiler alert, they were never able to recreate the event. This actually, this whole exercise actually helped them learn how they can cloak themselves better. Just saying. December 12th, memorandum of understanding is signed between both parties to ensure confidentiality of the Secretary of State's network security protocols. NASS sends a survey to all the states. DHS sends an interim update and suggests the issue is closed. December 13th, further investigation reveals nine other attempts to access the Secretary of State of Georgia's network through 2016. Secretary Kemp responds to DHS letters suggesting the matter is closed and calls on President Trump's administration to investigate after he takes office. December 14th, results from NASS survey show that Kentucky and West Virginia were also scanned. Indiana, Nevada, and Maine also begin investigations to look into their scanning activity. 
On December 16th, 2016, DHS holds a conference call with all state election officials to announce the attack against Georgia was caused by a contract employee at the FLACT. It's like a law enforcement joint task force thing. Probably a contractor. Probably a contractor. Actually, I think it is a contractor. I think that I even know the contractor's name that they blamed. And that, anyway, that is using an older version of Microsoft Word that created an open option call against Georgia Secretary of State's firewall. However, DHS was unable to explain how this theory could have occurred. They were also not able to replicate the action. So they made up some bogus reason. Oh, you know, it was this guy who's using it. Yeah, and it's, a, and it's totally legit. All right, let's recreate it. Yeah, we can't do that. So just trust us. Yeah, that's not right. <laughs> Next. On January 11th, uh, Jason Shaftes and U.S. Rep. Jody Heiss sent a joint letter to John Roth, the Inspector General for the Department of Homeland Security, asking for an independent federal investigation into the attack against Georgia's system. Secretary Kemp, on January 24th, received his first communication from DHS OIG office requesting documents related to their investigation. Now, that was 2017, those two. And there was a letter that was sent on in February 2017, but we haven't heard anything. I'm pretty sure it's been five years. I would highly appreciate it if anybody can find this DHS OIG investigation and give us the deets because it's been a while. Let's see where they're at with it. Now, here are the attempts. On February 2nd, 2016, the scan was conducted a day after Georgia's voter registration deadline for presidential preference primary. So on February 2nd, they were hacked by DHS after they finished their voter registration. Pay attention. That was on a Tuesday. On Sunday, February 28, 2016, a scan was conducted on Sunday afternoon, two days before Georgia's presidential preference primary, dubbed the SEC, SEC primary. So right before the primary, they were hacked. Again, Monday, May 23rd, 2016, the scan was conducted the day before Georgia's general private. So the day before the primary, DHS hacked them again, obviously, to set in eyes. Again, they were hacked. Then they were hacked again on September 12, 2016. This scan was conducted just before a conference call between DHS and Gemma to discuss designating election systems as critical infrastructure. And only three days after a call between election officials and Secretary Johnson on designating election systems, critical infrastructure. So they did this right before he had a conference call telling them, we do not want to federalize elections. Then they hacked Georgia again on Wednesday, September 28th. That scan was conducted just hours before Secretary Kemp testimony opposing the designation of election systems as critical infrastructure. So they hacked again right before he gave his testimony. Interesting. Interesting. His testimony that he gave in Congress, right? Remember the House committee that I said that I need to find that video September 28th, 2016? They hacked him right before he was going to give testimony. Then DHS decided on Monday, October 3rd, to hack them again. This scan was conducted on the Monday after Kemp's congressional testimony opposing the designation of election systems as critical infrastructure. Then on Thursday, October 6th, the scan was conducted the week after congressional testimony on the same day as the meeting with DHS field staff ahead of election day. So while they were meeting with him, the field staff of DHS, they were hacking his systems again. 
And then on Monday, November 7, 2016, the scan was conducted the day before Election Day. On Tuesday, the scan was conducted on Election Day. And then the following Tuesday, this scan was conducted exactly one week after the general election prior to the election results being certified. Now, Kemp, his systems were hacked by federal agents, which is a violation of law. They had no right to enter. I ask of you, do you really think your state conducts your elections? Think about it for a second. This is 2016. Now, potential, listen to this, potential DHS attacks. States began scanning systems to see if IP addresses associated with DHS have accessed or attempted access the system. So far, West Virginia, Kentucky, and Maine have reported unauthorized scanning activity against their systems. Hmm. The Election Assistance Commission, the EAC, has investigated intrusion into their network from a DHS IP address. So DHS also hacked the EAC network. So interesting. And so election leaders from around the country have called for an investigation into DHS. What happened with that investigation, you guys? Can you can you guys ask someone? Why is no one following up on these things? Did they just all bend the knee? Hmm? Hmm? January 6th, despite bipartisan opposition to the designation and with only two weeks remaining in his administration, Barack Hussein Obama's lover boy, Jay Johnson designated election systems a critical infrastructure sector. He gave the following reasons for his his decision. This is why they made elections federalized. The DNC hack, the hack of the Podesta emails. This will help stop Russia targeting elections, allows documents to be exempt from open records laws and allows states to receive better service from DHS. So for all those reasons, we now have federalized your election. How does that make you feel? Secretaries of state election officials, EAC commissioners and academics have called on President Trump to rescind the designation. Secretary Kemp has stated that the timeline of these events and designation of election systems as critical infrastructure smacks of bipartisan politics. Bipartisan politics, sorry. So this is an issue that has been ongoing. But one will say, why didn't President Trump do anything? Well, what was he supposed to do? What was he supposed to do? Do you remember what was happening in early 2017? Right? Comey. Distractions, 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 distractions. These are the things they do. Because the devil is down in Georgia. And that's where we need to go. We need to get there. You know, too bad. You know, maybe Ali Akbar knew what he did. The only place my declaration was not filed was in Georgia. If my declaration was actually filed in Georgia, we might not be in the position we are now. Lucy, rising up your bow and lay a fiddle high. Cause hell's broke loose in Georgia and the devil deals the cards. And if you win, you get the shiny fiddle made of gold. If you lose, the devil gets your soul. 
went down to Georgia. He was looking for a soul to steal. He was in a bind and way behind and willing to make a deal. He came up on this young girl, sawing on the fiddle and playing it hot. He jumped up on a hickory stump, said, girl, let me tell you what. I guess you didn't know it. I'm a fiddle player, too. And if you care to take a dare, I'll make a bet with you. You play a pretty good fiddle, girl, but give the devil his due. Better fiddle of gold against your soul. I think I'm better than you. Hey, now, my name's Lucy, and it might be a sin. I'll take your bet you're gonna regret I'm the best there's ever been. Lucy, run down your and play your fiddle hard. His tail's broke loose in Georgia, and the devil deals the cards. Because he knew that he'd been beat And he laid that golden fiddle on the ground at Lucy's feet Devil, just come on back if you ever want to try again You'll never stand a chance I'm the best there's ever been Run, 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 boys, run Devil's in the house of the rising sun Well, I mean, even the song saying the devil went down to Georgia. <laughs> what happened to Kemp, though? He was such a strong proponent of maintaining, you know, sovereignty of a state and control of elections. What happened? I guess he became governor. That's what happened. So before we talk about, you know, this raid and all these whistleblowers, I thought we'd talk about a missing persons case. Then 
not a lot of people are talking about, but has gotten people's attention. And it's kind of weird. And you know who I like on the commentary that we're going to listen to in regards to this? One of my favorite musicians. Yeah, this guy right here. Upchurch. Freaking love him. Listen to him comment on this. Not only is she gone, the car that she drove to the party in is also gone. The only people who knew about her and talked to her and seen her during this time is Jagger, the ex-boyfriend. At 10.30, she responded to what I was saying and just said, oh, I'm sorry that you're going through that. And that was the last night of her. Kate, the girl who made creme brulee with her. The day of the party, I hung out with her. We made creme brulee. She was, I mean, everything was normal. Sammy, the girl who seen her when she got to the party and was the last person to see her. Yes, I was the last person to contact her after the party, and I was with her basically throughout the entire party. Then you got Megs, the chick who rode there with her, and then left 10 minutes later. Within the only 10 minutes that I was there, I literally had a group of five guys try to come get me to take as many like um, bong rips as I could. All right, let's start with Jagger. I don't think Jagger did shit. I think Jagger's innocent. I think Kate Kuno is innocent as well. Some people think it's weird that he was like, hey, if you find out anything, call my number. I can filter through stuff. Personally, I don't think that's weird. He's a 16-year-old kid. He listens to stuff like Suicide Boys. He probably thinks the cops don't give a fuck and they're going to do shit. So he's just, that's probably his way of being like, let me know and I'll go look. Plus, the Jagger dude was four hours away with his dad during this time. He was nowhere near the party. And if what I seen was correct, Jagger drove all the way down to meet up with her parents the next day. You know who he didn't meet up with? All these other fucking people who were staying there with her. Why do you think that is? Who's the one person from around the area she went missing that Jagger is standing beside? Kate Kuno. Kylie's close friend Kate Kuno says they spent the afternoon together on Friday, just hours before she disappeared. Kate was with Kylie before the party. She knows more than anyone, probably. She probably knows the most. If she knows the most, she's going to hit up Kylie's ex-boyfriend, especially if she knows he's a good guy and could help, which is why they're standing beside each other. And another thing, these other girls that are claiming to be Kylie's friend, why isn't Kate standing with them? Exactly. I don't think they've done anything. I think they're innocent. I think they're actually worried about her. Plus, if he done something, do you think he's going to drive straight to Mama Bear, somebody who has the best intuition about her daughter? No. All right, now let's talk about Megs. She said before the party she was hanging out with Kylie. Okay, well, Kate said she was hanging out with Kylie. Why did Megs ride to the party with Kylie, stay 10 minutes, and leave? Within the only 10 minutes that I was there, I literally had a group of five guys try to come get me to take as many like um, bong rips as I could uh, like forcefully without my boyfriend present. So as soon as Megs gets there within 10 minutes, she steps out of the car and everybody's like forcing her to take bong rips. No, your boyfriend got there in 10 minutes. Did he just drive really fast or did you call him ahead of time and be like, Hey, pick me up at this party that I'm not going to stay at meet you there. That seems kind of dumb, kind of, but I mean, I guess it could happen. 
No. But that's one of the things that don't make sense. All this, uh, I got picked up, I rode with this person. It's all a bunch of fuckery. You want to know how I know? Because look who the Meg's girl is always with. The Sammy chick now, right? Okay. Well, Meg's is telling not her story now. Now she's telling somebody else's story. Hmm, I wonder whose fucking story she's telling. A lot of older people started showing up that people didn't know. Like, a lot of drugs were involved. Like, drugs that we don't typically have just in parties. Um, and our parties also just aren't normally that fit. How do you know? You was only there for 10 minutes. Within the only 10 minutes that I was there. Here's my question. What in the fuck is up with everybody trying to push this man? So many bad drugs that could kill you possibly. Now let's move on to Sammy. This is where shit just gets like real weird. Is yeah. this what she, can you confirm whether or not she was wearing this at the night of the party? Is that what she was wearing? Yeah, so that top is exactly what I saw her in. If you can see on her left side, on her hip, you can see some skin. She was wearing a black bodysuit. I remember mm. because we went to the bathroom together, peed in the woods together a couple of times. And so that's her shirt right there. The pants were different that she wore to the party. She was wearing green Dickies pants, but that belt is definitely what she's wearing too. All right, Sammy. Well, there's just one problem I have with that. And it's, it's, it's the information that the cops released last night. You know, you're pretty good at describing, you know, exactly what she was wearing. Even that belt, you know, the same kind of pants, just a different shade, kind of, you know. I know that in the dark. Different shade. It's not that navy blue. It's more like navy green. Well, just a couple hours ago, the Placer County Sheriff released a new photo showing a sweatshirt Kylie was spotted wearing in a video recorded the night she disappeared. Hmm. That's kind of weird. Sammy, you know, that was with her all night since she got there. Last person to see her. I don't know how she knows that she's the last person to see her since, you know, she left her at the party. But whatever. Damn. How did Sammy notice, you know, her belt in the dark and her slightly different colored pants, but not the big fucking colorful pink and white hoodie? On your last call, did she let you know who the quote-unquote friend was that was driving her home? Yeah, so this is a common misconception. This is also the part of the story that makes the most not sense. Um, she was not being driven home, and she was not driving. How do you know? You weren't there. You left already. So, okay. At the end of the party when she called, when I saw her, I she was supposed to give me a ride home because I had asked her to give me a ride home because I wanted to stay later. You wanted to stay later, even though guys were forcing your friend Megs to do bong rips and it was scary, you said. There was a lot of guys that did approach us. Definitely, I was getting a gut feeling during that that party that something something just didn't feel right with the amount of people that were there and how old some of these people were from the amount of people who did show up. I... It was scary. She was supposed to give me a ride home because I had asked her to give me a ride home because I wanted to stay later. I've never heard of a female being like, man, this sketches me out. My gut feeling tells me to get the fuck out of here. What is up with all these weird people? I want to stay here longer. I then realized later in the party that I believe she was drunk and I knew she was drunk. And so I did not want her to be driving me home um, because I... You know, I know about drunk drivers and all that. Once again, painting the picture of, oh man, she was like totally fucked up and drunk. Like for real fucked up and drunk. Yeah, and I figured she would be staying there or she would find a ride home because she's a smart girl. Is that what you figured? Well, you said when y'all both went back to charge y'all's phones in Kylie's car, 
you talked about texting her mom. She texted her mom that she was coming home. That doesn't sound like, hey, I'm spending the night here in my car. It sounds like she's going home. Uh, I found her as I was leaving the party. I was making sure to find her, to tell her that I had another ride home and that um, I loved her and I want to say bye and for her to have fun at the party. You want to know how I know something's up with two in particular people in this situation? Because something Mama Bear said. Yeah, Kylie's mom. You know, after I seen the police put out that picture of that hoodie, I was like, well, that's weird. The Sammy chick never fucking mentioned that hoodie. That's weird. But there was the other mystery hoodie, remember? Tiffany's also shared two more pictures. The first picture shows a sweatshirt she was loaned. What if that was a bullshit hoodie put out as bullshit evidence? Or maybe somebody's hoodie used to frame somebody else for doing something. I know what you're thinking. Oh, I don't think a hoodie's that important. Okay, well then watch what is said in this interview by Kylie's mom. Then one of the most recent revelations was this shirt, this hoodie she was seen wearing. Did you know that she owned that shirt? Had you seen it before? That sweater belongs to one of her good friends. Lana Del Rey is a musician who um, sings so eloquently and has so many beautiful lyrics that can be quoted and put on a shirt i think that it's not helpful to go down any rabbit holes or follow any red herrings about you know a, a sweater from a concert that had a pretty picture on it my interpretation of what she just said is mama bear ain't buying nobody's bullshit about no hoodie last but not least this new mystery person they're fucking creepy they make everything creepier so apparently this mystery guy who sounds like he's hella older, he sounds like he's my age, his ass definitely don't sound 16, had two mystery cousins at the party. He doesn't say their name. Even though he's talking about these two mystery cousins at this party, he's talking like he was there. Well, she stayed later than them. But they didn't say it like they, they didn't. Uh... Oh, okay. Your mystery cousins who left before her said, yeah, she stayed later. How do they know that she didn't leave one minute after? The fuck? Uh, they did tell uh, me that they didn't see her wearing a sweatshirt at that time. There we go again with a sweatshirt comment from a guy that wasn't there. They didn't see did her see wearing a sweatshirt. She, did they see her in a tank top? Like the black? Yeah, spaghetti. she was wearing the bodysuit. Yeah, she, mm -hmm. was wearing, she was wearing the same outfit, but they didn't see her wearing no sweatshirt. Yeah, yeah, my mystery cousin seen her in the bodysuit. The bodysuit, the same outfit, not a sweatshirt. Not a sweatshirt. Did they see anybody like creepy out there? Do people hook up out there, like right there in the woods too? Like, like do they? Oh, look, like I can't say the people. It's hard to explain. Whose name can't you say, motherfucker? Like, there's uh, um, there's okay. So when kids go out there, because I've been I've been out there. I've partied in Tahoe. I don't party as much anymore because I got three kids now. But I know when they go out there, a lot of kids go out there. They don't go out there with the drugs. They don't go out there with the shrooms. Like they usually bring the alcohol. They get alcohol. The dudes who come out there, the older guys, they have the shrooms and the cocaine. And then the kids go hang out with. He said, I don't do that anymore. I have three kids. Pay attention. That group, the mm. older dudes, because they're giving them the, the blow and hooking them up with stuff that they can't afford because they don't really got the money for it. Most of the guys, they always want to give it to the girls. 
And it's being offered for free because they want the company and stuff. Yeah, yeah, for free. They're yeah, giving yeah. free lines, but then yeah. they want you to kick it with them. You know, right, like, right. oh, hey, come come do a line with me. Come do a line with me. You know, and that's how it goes. Those are how those parties are. Right. So there's no telling what could happen. But I do know, I do know for a fact she was messed up. That is a fact. So yeah. if they try to word it nicely, like, oh, yeah, she was a little. No, no, she was, she was shit-faced. <laughs> how the fuck do you know? How the fuck do you know? Another thing. Why are you laughing? This isn't funny. You just said you had three kids. I don't think you have three kids. If you had three kids, you wouldn't be laughing about a kid getting fucked up and being messed. Another thing. I really want to know who these two fucking cousins are because there's only two other people I know of that was at this party that have laughed while talking about Kylie Rodney. She gets back, she's going to know. You all did love her so much. Like, yeah! I was very uncomfortable. The first day that she was missing, I mean, I was literally in a car for 12 hours looking for her. No offense, but do you want, like, a round of applause for doing something you're supposed to do? No one gives a fuck. Your friend's still missing. And there's, and you're probably having different groups of people bringing their type of cocaine, so then they're all sharing amongst each other. Hmm. You know who else talked about sharing amongst each other? Sammy, you know who she talked about sharing stuff with? Kylie. So your cousins, they left around 1030 or something like that. Yeah, they left. Uh, she was still there, but they didn't. I asked them if they saw her before they left, and they didn't. Oh, okay. To me, if I went out there now, like, let's say if I went out there, and I saw some older dudes, and I knew a girl was 16, 17, and he's like, come do a line with me, I would think that's fucking creepy alone itself. Like, dude, why do you want to do a line with her? She's like 10 years younger than you. She's a minor. If you were there, you said you've been there a bunch. You're talking like you were there. Question, why the fuck would you go there? You have three kids, right? Why the fuck you finna go party with a bunch of kids? The fuck is wrong with you? But when you basically decide to go outside a party, it's like all bets are off. Like everyone's okay with it. This does not sound like somebody who has like, you know, children and morals no no when you're fucking 31 and you show up to a party and if a kid's like yo cocaine you go uh no and then you look at yourself and you go what am i doing here i'm a i'm a fuck up that's what you do you know what i mean so nobody would look at it as creepy first off me and my friends would never be caught partying with children second off if a child was at a party and we seen an older dude try to give the child coke. We're going to kick your fucking ass. All of us. But on the outside, right. in, you would think it's creepy. No, no, there's no thinking it's creepy. It's fucking creepy. It doesn't matter how you look at it. This dude is trying to solidify it for his motherfucking self. Right, right. And someone said, what does it blow mean? Blow is cocaine. Is this dude being serious? But yeah. somebody said, how could she have been wasted already? I mean, I don't know. A lot of people pregame sometimes, too. We don't, And we don't know what no, she did she, before she got there, either. Yeah, she she was she was drinking pretty much the whole time. <laughs> Will somebody tell me why this bitch ass motherfucker is laughing? And how did you know, bitch? You said you wasn't fucking there. Like that's when I know when they saw her. They saw her early in the day. Oh really? Who saw her early in the day? Your two imaginary cousins or uh, Sammy and Megs? They saw. Do you said they saw her earlier in the day. Yeah, and she was drunk. What do you mean earlier in the day? Exactly. Like before they left, like they because they left around like ten thirty or eleven. So okay. before that, like 
I would guess like around eight or nine that she was she was already drunk. Who's your fucking cousins? And have the cousins so spoke to her? She was already she was drunk. Oh, okay. Hmm. That's what Sammy said. Is Sammy your fucking cousin? Damn, that's crazy, man. Yeah, but they but I asked him, I was like, did you guys know her? Like, were you guys friends with her? But they right. like they had no type of connection with her whatsoever. So your mystery cousins who don't know her whatsoever, don't have any association with her, just watched her the whole time, knew exactly what she was wearing, when she was leaving, knew that she was drunk and wasted and probably doing coke and being a fucking raging crazy person. No, 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 no. There's two people for show This full of shit. And I'm going to tell y'all right now, if y'all are watching this, which you probably are on your little social media fucking app, being like, I wonder what everyone's saying. The cops already know. You're fucked. You're fucked. You're going to be busted. Y'all sloppy as fuck. And I'm glad. You know, I'm a big fan of Ryan Upchurch. I had to show that one to kind of show how the fog of war disrupts and obstructs justice and how some people are just so into themselves that they tell on themselves. Criminals aren't smart. Um, They're creatures of habit. They like doing the same thing, uh, same playbook over and over. The question is, why would adults be there? But, you know, like he said, the cops already know. They're probably all over it. But I love me some upchurch. Like, I really love that guy. And that commentary I had to share because in a nutshell, he dispelled everything that's going on in social media, the friends with the five minutes of fame, the how upset they are. Now, I want to say when it comes to death and, and first death that young people may encounter or a missing friend, um, they can have this period of desensitization um, and a hype. Unfortunately, a lot of human beings love drama in their life. Um, to create drama, to have something to talk about or do. And this is one of those examples that rather than just keep your mouth shut, you know, first of all, like a 16 year old's on camera on TV saying, oh yeah, they wanted me to do as many bong rips as I can. Like where are her parents? Like no offense. Where I'm just thinking if that was Phoebe, I'd be like, I'd be on there grabbing that ear and dragging her off camera. (laughs) You were at a party where people were trying to make you have bong rips Um, in the middle of the woods where 25 year olds and 27 year olds and people with three kids are coming with cocaine. Like it would be like, who are you hanging out with girlfriend? So where are the parents of all these teenagers of this party right now? Like that's the most confusing part for me, but I guess we'll see what happens. Uh, The point of that is just so you can see how obfuscation can happen and how easily people can change things. Now, one thing, um, you know, uh, that's coming back into the news is Epstein, either by way of um, necessity or by way of rumors. Oh, maybe he had Epstein's book. I had it. I've already published most of it. You know, it's not blacked out. It's been available. Obviously, testimony from the female pilot we don't have. And there are some other manifests that I don't have um, or I haven't obtained because I didn't really chase that um 
about Epstein. Uh, there was an interview that I shared from a former CIA analyst who explained better to people uh, the role of the CIA and what they do and how they are. But when asked about Epstein, he said, you know, there's a lot of people that they tap as assets, um, either by way of business or connections. And it's a, it's an interesting interview to watch, but when asked about Epstein, uh, you know, he didn't deny that he was working for the agency. The one thing that the CIA does is either that you're the target because you have a network. So like, for example, Joe Rogan, there's definitely a file on him. Why? He's got a phone packed with a lot of people's phone numbers and private texts. So when he's traveling to another country or another state, the question is, is anyone lifting all these contacts and communications from his phone? And therefore, those can be privileged communications. Therefore, we have to have a a target on him to watch any changes. So you could be simply a target just because of the information or the communications you have with certain people, not necessarily a target of them, but a target to protect you because you have these connections. You don't, you don't necessarily have to be the important person. So think of Epstein with all that he did, how important he was as a target for the intelligence community because he was with presidents and sheikhs and, and kings and queens and princes and princesses and loaded people, uh, you know, from, uh, you know, um, different nations. Uh, he was a prime asset. Therefore, they let him do what he needed to do as long as he was complicit with them knowing it. So if you think that Jeffrey Epstein did things on his island and your agencies, your FBI, your CIA, your NSA, your NRO, your State Department, your the State Department actually helped him bring victims in, but I digress. That's another story. You're highly mistaken. He didn't just slip through their fingers. There are files upon files on this man. So there's been a lot leaking of leaking from, from the, the DOJ recently, but somehow the Justice Department has not leaked anything really about Jeffrey Epstein, including his client list. Why is that? Well, Elon Musk, a big picture man, if there ever was one, asked that question recently, quote, the only thing more remarkable than DOJ not leaking the list is that no one in the media cares, he wrote. Well, that's true. And while we're on the topic of Epstein, why did Bruce Reinhardt, the magistrate judge who approved the Mar-a-Lago raid, represent several of Jeffrey Epstein's employees, including his pilot and his schedule? Huh, weird. Bobby Capucci is a podcast host who is doggedly following this story. He joins us tonight. Bobby, thanks so much for coming on. So you follow this full-time, one of the few who does. Why haven't we gotten any of this information in the form of leaks to the New York Times, do you think? Well, in my opinion, it has to do with how far it goes. This is such a gigantic in scope operation that he was running that if they really dug deep, that it would be almost earth shattering what they would discover. If you take a look at some of the similar cases in New York at a similar time for similar crimes, R. Kelly or Keith Raniere, both were hit with RICO charges, but Epstein, Maxwell, no RICO there. I wonder why. Yeah, it's kind of weird. I mean, they they grabbed some Alex Jones's text the other day, and the line is that Alex Jones is the, is the real criminal, not Jeffrey Epstein, right? But the second they got his text, you know, you you know everything. Everything embarrassing thing he's ever said, of course, is going to be in the New York Times. But they are affirmatively protecting Jeffrey Epstein, 
who's not even alive anymore. I just, I, it's just one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. It's been going on all the way since the Vanity Fair article back in 2002, the puff piece on, on Jeffrey Epstein back then. You know, Maria Farmer outed this guy in 1995, 1996. Nobody followed up on it. Nobody ever pursued him the way they should have. And it was all happening right under the nose of the SDNY, who loves to get on their ivory tower and preach down to the rest of us on a regular basis about how bad we live our lives. Meanwhile, this guy yeah. was running around in their district for four presidencies, hanging out at the White House, you know, they're all of it, and nobody cares what's going on until the survivors themselves decide to go and take the case to the people. And we see what's happened since then. There's been an avalanche effect, and they've had to react to it. Really quick, you keep reading suggestions that there's a trove of videotape of other people at Epstein's properties. Do you think that's true? Well, what I can tell you is all of the survivors who had access to his townhouse, all of them that had access to Palm Beach, they all said that there were surveillance rooms in those houses set up for that specific purpose, to take video of everybody who came in and to document it. So we're talking about the people that actually lived through this telling us that, and nobody right. cares. We have, I mean, when, when the Daily Mail is leading the charge to go after somebody like Prince Andrew and not the gray lady or the Washington Post, that tells you right. everything you need to know about where the legacy media is at. Well, that's exactly right. And of course he was connected to various intelligence agencies, which might be the real answer. Bobby, I appreciate your staying on so the So here's what I want to point out. While people want to see the Jeffrey Epstein list and Ghislaine Maxwell's list, I'm going to give you my more personal attestation. I was being surveilled. My family and I were being surveilled from 2017 up until, well, I mean, we're still being surveilled, but let's just say up until, you know, 2019, um, we were being surveilled by the North Dakota Attorney General's office in North Dakota. They had wiretap my house. They had people watching my house. They had everything. I'm pretty sure my Alexas and Google Homes were on tap for them. They had used secret subpoenas and watched everything. I remind you that in those two years, crimes happened against myself and my children, and they watched. That's a crime in itself. So I want you to think again when Epstein and Ghislaine executed and did all of these things. They had a golden ticket, like the one that Patrick Byrne talks about in a safe where he could do anything and he'd be pardoned. These people had that because they could do whatever they want because they were just giving intelligence to the CIA, Mossad, MI6, you name it. They would just hand over everything because the only way to control powerful people is through blackmail. And these people had the most. So your agencies all knew what they were doing. But in lieu of oh, national security and obviously the Patriot Act and the Department of Homeland Security Act of 2002, um, they are able to watch and not prosecute. So because the question isn't, oh, my gosh, you knew that Clinton did this. Oh, my gosh, you knew Obama, Bob Menendez, all these people, this, that, and the other, you know, this, 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 and they're out free. That's not the issue. The issue is, wait a minute. You, the agency that took an oath to protect the people, didn't act on this? You let them do that? 
so that you can get intelligence, you let them do, you let the state department officials help them funnel in, you know, children from other countries. You worked with the Fonjul brothers, you know, down in the Dominican Republic at the airport, right by that resort where they would bring in people. You uh, were totally fine with stupid Lois down in West Palm Beach, having that deal with PBI airport so that Jeffrey Epstein wouldn't have to go through customs when he would bring unidentified children through there. You mean you sat there and knowingly and willingly allowed all of these things to happen. See, that's the problem. It's not about ratting all these people out. Well, it kind of is because, you know, it'll be like, wait, what? You mean this guy is sitting in office and does this? Uh, You mean, ew, right? These big consumer brands, you know, are into this, this, or maybe, you know, they like a little bit of human meat. This is crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. That's not it. Again, the reason you are not seeing it is because through time, for decades, they have allowed them to do it. They had seen innocent children, innocent victims succumb and breathe and take that last breath while they watched and did nothing because they needed dirt on this prince or this celebrity so they can control them. That is the point. It's not about who the bad guys are. The bad guys are actually the ones that stood there and let that shit happen for decades. You see, that's why you're not seeing the list, no matter how much you want it, because then they have to tell the world, yeah, we let crimes like this happen. We watch them rape kids, eat kids, kill kids, hunt kids, right? We watch them take women and send them out into a forest while people come out with arrows and they laugh in their pearls as they chase them down. Horrific things. Horrific things. We watch how they cook them. We watch how they make them do things to each other while they watch. So they don't do it. But they watch little kids kill other little kids. You know? We watch that. We have it on video. We record it. But, you know, we didn't act on it because it was very important to maintain our confidential human sources. This is the reason you're not seeing it. And the faster we come to the conclusion that... Those practices within our agencies are inhumane, uh, anti-American, violate every single foundation of morality that anyone can think of. Well, then this is where you restructure all of these agencies and have hard rules that there is no bending the rules to get information. There is no, oh, it was just one kid being raped. That's one kid too many. Oh, it was just one kid being killed. One kid too many. Oh, it was just some random Mexican immigrant that they brought in and they wanted to hunt. You know, poor guy shouldn't have tried to cross the border. We got him. No, these are the things and this is why you are not seeing the list. Not because they don't want to point the finger. They could give two shits. They've got whatever information. They're like, at this point, we don't care. It's not because of that. It is because of the fact that then they have to acknowledge that all of these agencies knew and did nothing. Again, going back to my personal, you know, experience, they knew and did nothing. In fact, they actually used those things that were done against me to try to make me look bad, which is even worse. But Again, this is happening. They sit idly and they watch this and they don't care. They just watch for decades. This is the problem we have. Now, speaking of, you know, 
whistleblowers, right? We had Jim Jordan come out um, and talk about 14 whistleblowers about FBI misconduct. Again, remember, these are the federal agencies that are conducting your elections and you should just trust them because, you know, they're a federal agency and they're, you know, careful and they're nonpartisan and they do things. One prime example is why haven't they handed over the Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell? Because they don't want you to see what crimes they allow to happen. So therefore, how can you trust them? Meantime, some breaking news. Reuters reporting an in-person hearing will be held Thursday on the motion to unseal the search warrant on Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. Correspondent Logan Raddick joining us now live from Capitol Hill with more. Logan, good morning. Emma, good morning. And you're right. The federal judge is uh, actually allowing that in-person hearing to happen on Thursday on that motion to appeal. But meanwhile, here on Capitol Hill, Congressman Jim Jordan, who's the ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee, uh, says that at least 14 FBI whistleblowers have come forward regarding the Justice Department's conduct in terms of this raid on Trump's Mar-a-Lago in Florida. Now, Congressman Jordan and 19 other Republicans 17 rather Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee are asking Attorney General Merrick Garland, FBI Director Christopher Wray and White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain to send Congress documents and communications related to the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago in terms of how a search warrant was approved and any communication between the DOJ and the White House regarding the execution of that warrant. Now, they're calling the FBI raid a, quote, weaponization of law enforcement resources against its political opponents. And the White House says it learned of the raid through news reports, even though Attorney General Merrick Garland says he signed off on the warrant himself. Now, GOP senators, including South Dakota's Mike Rounds, say they want more transparency and to see that affidavit released. Yeah, I think uh, releasing the affidavit would help. At least that would confirm uh, that there was justification for this raid. But I think it's very important long term for the Justice Department, now that they've done this, that they show that this was not just a fishing expedition, that they had that they had due cause to go in and to do this, that they did exhaust all other means. And if they can't do that, then we've got a serious problem on our hands. Then we've got a serious problem. But the DOJ is hinting that it will not release that affidavit, releasing a statement saying in part, quote, disclosure of the government's affidavit at this stage would also likely chill future cooperation by witnesses whose assistance may be sought as this investigation progresses, as well as in other high profile investigations. House Republicans are also pursuing communications between the FBI, Justice Department and the National Archives related to Donald Trump's presidential letters. And they're asking for the administration to comply within the next two weeks. Now, after CBS reported that the FBI was not in possession of former President Trump's passports, his communications team released this email from the government, which says, quote, we have learned that the filter agent seized three passports belonging to President Trump, two expired and one being his active diplomatic passport. We are returning them. Now, as for the documents seized uh, at the Trump residence last week, President Trump claims that he verbally declassified those documents, but also, again, that hearing, that in-person hearing uh, regarding the search warrant and how that came about scheduled two days from now, and that came through the federal judge overseeing that warrant. Back to you. All right, Logan Raddick live at the Capitol. Logan, thank you. 
So they want to see the affidavit. They want to see if there was probable cause. A.G. Uh, Garland said that he signed it personally, which means that the president of the United States should have notice, right? Because he's part of his cabinet. So somebody's lying. But the matter of fact is it happened. The indictment is coming. It happened. I told you that they were going to indict him. But I guess because Tucker and the other groups say it now, maybe it's more plausible. This is the the rubbish that people live under. They need their kings and their queens to acknowledge something as fact before they take it. Because, I don't know, they're supposedly credible. But, okay, I digress. They're just reading a script. This is why they give you information in the doses that you get it. So we have people that have come out and whistleblown. And they are making uh, very, uh, I would say, proper statements. So, again, how do you trust your federal government? Well, according to the Constitution, you don't have to. You're in charge of your federal government. Obviously, it doesn't seem like that. Because like in that video that I showed with um, Sicknick, uh, his first phrase was, cages are not made of iron. They're made of thoughts. You create the only cage that can keep you in. And the more you allow them to build your reality in your cage to keep you trapped in it, the more you will just keep cycling the same thing. You know, hell isn't, you know, people pulling at you and fire prodding you. It's doing the same thing over and over again, trying to uh, get a different result, which is the actual definition of insanity. So, you know, the government, do we trust them? Well, I have to think, uh, Project Veritas on getting these um, leaked documents. Within the Department of Homeland Security has leaked to us an intelligence bulletin marked for official use only unclassified in light of the FBI raid on President Trump. This document dated August 12th refers to a heightened threat from what the Department of Homeland Security calls DVEs or domestic violent extremists, quote, motivated by a range of ideologies who have grievances against a variety of targets, including law enforcement. Domestic violent extremists are referred to in one of these paragraphs as, quote, Many of these threats include references to the perception that the 2020 presidential election was fraudulent and other claims of government overreach. They keep stating that the perception that it was stolen. DHS says that DHS should be ashamed of itself. If we need to dismantle any agency anywhere, it would be the Department of Homeland Security that was created right after 9-11. And it has helped choke transparency, choke self-governance of citizens, right? Choked the actual republic, choke the rule of law and help dilute our constitution. So if anyone's thinking of an agency that should go, The minute DHS is gone, everybody takes their role appropriately. The 2022 midterms in this document are also highlighted as a potential, quote, flashpoint for this violent extremism. We would not have this document, but not for the brave source inside Department of Homeland Security, a new source that reached out to us on our tip line. Veritas tips at ProtonMail.com and also our signal cell phone. We're getting a lot of sources within the federal government coming to Project Veritas because they certainly can't go. 
to places like the Washington Post or the New York Times who quote these people on background and show you no documents at all. Now, the Department of Homeland Security has declined to confirm the existence of this document, but you can see it with your own eyes and ears, which is certainly not something the mainstream media wants you to necessarily see, but you can see it here and you can see it on our website. As you may recall, two weeks ago, a source in the FBI, a different source, sent us a series of documents revealing that the agency was categorizing patriotic symbols that are very common as indicators of, quote, militia violent extremism. And as Ted Cruz pointed out in the hearing, cross-examining Christopher Ray, the Gadsden flag, this bow tie, if I were to wear it, the FBI would consider it an indication of militia violent extremism. And as Senator Cruz so eloquently articulated, Christopher Ray, what are you doing? But it's not Christopher Ray. It's the people that work under Christopher Ray, and he's allowing them to do as they wish. Sometimes you just have to allow people. I get I get that a lot from people I know and that I adore. Why are you go letting people do like that to you? Why don't you like interject and stop this? There's no point. I'm not the one that needs to seek it. They do. Sometimes you just have to let people be themselves because then it all comes out. You just let it roll. And then you can see what exactly their issue is. That's how you figure things out. Secret Service is um, apparently saying that, uh, you know, they're saying that there's January 6th text missing. I wanted you to listen to this former Secret Service agent and what he has to say on CNN about something like that. This is important. And it'll be important in September. Remember, it was Ali Akbar that talked about burner phones. It was Ali Akbar's team. It was the third operation. There were two operations. The operation that was planned by federal employees to be executed to raid the Capitol. Then there was the good guys, and I'm using air quotes, that thought we could use this as an operation to get more information. We'll steal laptops. We'll steal this under the guise of what the left is going to be doing because they're crazy. But they didn't account for the McCainers in the middle that charged them with what the left did and what they did. So while they were throwing cover, right, they were pinning it all on them too. So sad. So amateur. Talk about too, because this you know, you know hits close, close to home. Meaning you have been a Secret Service agent for what fourteen mm-hmm. years, and now I want to hear your reaction to what Evan is reporting that possibly uh, ten U.S. Secret Service personnel are linked to recovered metadata communications um, on those very pertinent days. What are your thoughts? Well, listen, Fred, there's a lot of turmoil around the Secret Service right now. Uh, it's been widely reported. But, you know, this this most recent reporting around a criminal investigation is not good. Anytime that you have a law enforcement entity investigating criminal activity of another law enforcement entity, the, the that just has a, an order of consequences that uh, doesn't yield any positive results. And in this case, it complicates things further because we have multiple investigations going on at one time. And here's what I mean by that. The inspector general has stated that they're actually investigating the Secret Service specifically on the collection and preservation of evidence around those text messages, right? So we know that there there is uh, potential items of evidentiary value contained within that metadata. So we know that that is there. That is why 
uh, that's the precipitating action for this criminal investigation. But the consequence of, of that criminal investigation now is that the Secret Service is no longer allowed to review internally the matter. So that means that uh, collaboration and cooperation fully in internal investigations within uh, the Secret Service have now halted. So what does that mean? That means potentially that information that is being sought by the January 6th commission may be delayed. All of this at the end of the day is further going to push out fully adjudicating this matter, what was contained in those text messages. And as Evan reported earlier, do those text messages actually contain pertinent material information to activity on January 6th? Again, we're not going to get this immediately. This mm -hmm. is now going to be drawn out for months. All right. Generally speaking, uh, what kind of text messaging takes place between Secret Service detail uh, on any number of assignments? Well, listen, there's there's multiple pathways of communication for a detail. When we're talking about the detail, let's just talk about it's the, the women and men that are surrounding the protectee. In this case, we're talking about the, the, the working detail of the vice president at the Capitol and the, the president's detail that was at the Ellipse and at the White House. Their primary means of communication is the radio, right? And that's what, you know, we, we see the earpieces, the microphones, that's their primary means of communication. Mm -hmm. Things that are more administrative follow a pathway of emails and in some instances, text messages. But, you know, all of that combined, you know, will, you know, we know we have the email messages, we know we have the radio transmission, we know we have sworn testimony. Mm -hmm hope is not lost if we don't have these text messages, right? I think that everyone is hoping for a smoking gun in uh, the metadata that is going to point to something. But there are other aspects of, of investigation and investigative techniques that can be deployed to actually fully uh, find out what happened. Remember, those text messages went somewhere. So they went to somebody. You can find out through service providers who those text messages went to and then get sworn statements and affidavits there. Again, directionally, we'll understand what type of information was relayed and the investigation will progress from there. But you know, at the end of the day, I think we're really focused on these text messages, which we should be, but I don't think it'll yield the, the results that most people are anticipating. So you're saying you, you find that it would be unusual that there would be a lot of um, information, incriminating or not, that would be conveyed via text because it's not customary that while on detail, that agents would be using text? I, I just think it's a low probability of occurrence, Fred. Uh, it's just not the way that typically the, the Secret Service is communicating as a working detail. Now, outside of uh, their protective responsibilities, do people text each other? Yes, they do. But I think in the moments of actually on a protective mission, the primary means of communication are the, uh, the radio transmissions, um, but again, you know, what I say is that there's no secrets in the Secret Service, right? So I think <laughs> that if there was something being attempted out of malice here, right, if there was a cover-up, um, I think that uh, that would have come to light already. What this is, this is, this is uh, sloppy governance. This is, you know, oversight that wasn't follow, uh, followed through in terms of, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the technology upgrades. But I don't, I just find it really hard to believe that, you know, they opened up this criminal investigation, meaning that they thought there was criminal malicious activity uh, in, engaged by a Secret Service agent. I just, you know, 14 years in the agency, mm. I just find it very hard to believe. Uh, and I hope that it's not true. Okay. So you think it's more sloppy work versus uh, suspicious activity that these uh, texts e are missing? Exactly. Fred, I, I, 
I, I, exactly. And I said this time and time again, this is a self-inflicted wound by the Secret Service, right? I think that the way that they, this is a, this is a process issue. Uh, they didn't follow the guidelines that set forth by the um, you know, Federal Records Act. They didn't retain critical information. Again, they should have done that. They need to uh, be held accountable for that. But when it comes to was that activity malicious, I find that hard to believe uh, on, on January 6th. Mm. At least he's honest and he says it wasn't malicious. Intent is, is key. Intent is key. And now there are statements being made by our president where they took privileged and uh, private information, right? Uh, privileged documents that were not in their purview or necessary by them. Please take a listen. Now, since that FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump's residence down in Palm Beach, joining me now to discuss President Trump's attorney, Elena Abba, back with us uh, in-house. Great to have you with us. Uh, everybody, it seems like, wants a piece of Donald Trump, especially on the left right now. I want to start in New York. Um, Donald Trump was deposed for six hours by New York Attorney General Letitia James, and he took the fifth on every single question. What was that like? Uh, long. Yes. <laughs> but they were so pleasant, and we got along with Letitia and her team uh, fantastically, which was quite surprising. I, I wasn't expecting to see Miss James there, but when she was there, I was actually pleasantly surprised at the rhetoric between the president and her and myself and the team. And they couldn't have been more courteous. We honestly all got along. The president at one point went around the table and, and uh, shook her hand. Were you surprised by that? Did you, did you Was it gamesmanship on the part no. of the attorney general or is there some general actual affection no, it between was genuine. the two. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think it was genuine what I saw, and I'm a pretty good judge of character. Right. It was very genuine, and I've been one to come out and say, Letitia James and all her comments. And um, no, it was a very humanizing uh, moment, and I think it was important, especially given what our country looks like right now, to see that people on opposing sides uh, can sit down and actually be real and genuine and like each other. Right, right. Yeah. All right, let's go to Florida. Um, the big one last Monday, this this yeah. raid on Mar-a-Lago. You've heard about this? Um, I, a little bit. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what happened over the weekend, and I really haven't seen this anywhere, but the Department of Justice, Merrick Garland, right. they are going to oppose what's called an independent special master. Mm -hmm. um, first, what is that? And why would the DOJ oppose something like that? That's very common. Right. So in these types of situations, what happens is, um, you know, the, the attorneys handling it will ask that there be an independent special master, which is basically an attorney that gets appointed to oversee to make sure everything is done correctly. That is independent of both our side and the Department of Justice. It's a neutral party. Think of it much like a mediator. They just make sure that the T's are being crossed, the I's are being dotted, and there's no funny business. Right. So um, my understanding from the attorneys on our side is that they did ask and give them a heads up that they wanted to ask for a special, you know, a special mask. Again, very case. common to do it that. It is common, especially in these highly politicized situations. It's, it's a good thing to do. Mueller, all of these people are mm -hmm. appointed. Um, you want to do it to basically preserve that everything is done with dignity and correctly. They did indicate to our attorneys, though, that they were going to oppose that. And how long would that process take? And were you surprised by that? Opposing it is right away. They'll make a decision soon whether they're going to have an independent special master. Was I surprised by it? Yes. I don't think optically it's a good idea. I think that you need to look impartial, especially given the negative um, impact that this has had yeah. on the country right now. I would try and look as open to having transparency as possible.
All right. If the DOJ does have anything on the former president, uh, yeah. if it's something that violates maybe the Presidential Records Act, um, yeah. we've heard a lot about that. Um, is it enough to disqualify him from maybe running again in 24? So if you look at this old antiquated statute, which is probably part of the reason why they brought these three statutes in on the warrant, they say that if you are charged and, and convicted of these, you would be disqualified from running for president. Um, you know, you can take from that what you want. What people are saying is it had to do with Jan 6. It had to do with a lot of things. At the end of the day, I think that would cause so much mayhem. That would be a monstrous mistake. I also just don't understand. He was cooperating. They had been on premises prior. He had had a subpoena that they coordinated effort with his team to come in. They told us to lock it up. They locked it up. So why? Why did you need after two months to have this insane raid? You know, it's 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 a sad thing for our country. It just doesn't make sense to me. As an attorney, no, I can't make sense of it. And it just seems like selective justice. And I think that's why so many people yeah. on the left as well are like, wait a second, this is not the yeah. America I signed up for. Just quickly, about 15 seconds. Mm -hmm. um, if the former president is indicted and may be charged, when would that happen? Do you expect the timing right around the midterms, 85 days away? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, if we look historically at President Trump's attacks, usually it's an October surprise, right. much like Russia hoax, right? So um, I would suspect, if I had to guess, that they'll conveniently do this sometime in late October, okay. but I hope not. I really hope not. Lena, um, we appreciate you coming in on a Monday morning and appreciate your she's amazing. Good to, you. Good to see you, Rob. She's amazing and and she's stunning, right? No one can. I mean, she's stunning and smart. And what everyone is going, uh, you know, trying to make sense of this. They're trying to make sense of this is that they're using the fact that they had come on the premises and and looked at, uh, you know, documents or whatever. And they're like, OK, well, you saw these if you thought that they were such a big deal. Like, why are we talking about it? So they're all going back to that. But that's not the point. The point is, I had already seen the indictment, the draft, the Espionage Act. I didn't. I saw the obstruction of justice. I saw some other statutes. I, I didn't see that one. So that was probably something new. Based on information they probably got from someone that had met with him in the past three weeks. The affidavit will tell us a lot. It's the 302 uh, that they must have had first person knowledge. It's not just them going there because a lot of people are like, oh, well, maybe it was first person knowledge of a special agent and he wrote up a statement or an affidavit. I am of the fact that he had met with a lot of people in those three weeks and one of those a lot of people gave testimony. They're a human confidential source. And as you saw from a document that I dropped yesterday, they have no problem asking the courts to um, allow breach of attorney-client privilege to make them a human source, as you saw. So this isn't, you know, attorney-client privileged uh, communications. They will even overstep as well. And that's key. When you see it written on paper, it's different than just saying it. Ooh, maybe they tapped an attorney, right? That's just saying it. But I showed you a document, but they literally requested it from the Eastern District of New York yesterday that they want to use lawyers as confidential human sources. And that is a big deal when you have a lure that's your own lawyer. So, you know, that just goes to show that there's no bounds on who could it be. Now, a lot of people want to dislike his son-in-law, his daughter, lots of red flags. I'm going to say just trust the process because the one thing you shouldn't do is interrupt people when they're pulling their own pants down. That's key.
I say, I say it all the time. Sometimes it hurts, right? It hurts me when I allow it to happen a lot. But in the end, in the end is what matters. Now, speaking of in the end, what matters, we all know that the Supreme Court uh, concealed carry decision has been done, but states are actually defying that Supreme Court concealed carry decision. And um, so there's this guy that I listen to um, called Arms Scholar. He talks about Second Amendment stuff all the time, popped over to see what he had to say on this. And this was quite fascinating. Take a listen. Two Second Amendment cases up for Supreme Court review. And this case will directly stop states like California and New York, who are trying to defy the Supreme Court's ruling in Bruin. So let's talk about this. But real quick before you jump into this video, if you agree that states need to stop violating our rights to keep and bear arms, go ahead and hit that like button and subscribe. Also, I want to give a shout out to one of the main supporters of this channel, which is USCCA. Through your membership, you get training, education, and self-defense liability protection. So if you carry a firearm, I highly recommend you take a look into USCCA, and I'll put a link to them down in the details section. So like I said in the intro, a new Second Amendment case is up for Supreme Court consideration. This case is very important because it strikes directly at current anti-gunner strategies which violated our Second Amendment rights. This case involves whether the government can use a subjective standard like propensity for violence or instability to deny a permit to carry concealed. Also, this case involves whether the government can try to moot these Second Amendment cases by granting permits once they are sued or by changing the overall laws once they are sued. This case would bar the new California and New York CCW laws, which put in place subjective morality determinations for CCW permits. It would also prevent any future efforts by states like California and New York to frustrate litigation against them because they are violating our rights and would prevent them from simply trying to moot these cases whenever they are sued. Now, what happened in this case and how did it end up before the Supreme Court? Well, an individual named Mr. Whitaker is a longtime resident of Washington, D.C., and he obtained a D.C. license to carry a pistol in November of 2018. Now, on the day of his detention, Mr. Whitaker, his cousin, and his girlfriend visited a gun range in Maryland where they ultimately did use the handgun and practice with the handgun. Now, when they left the gun range, he placed the pistol in a lockbox in his trunk, but he did not remove the holster that he had on his hip. He then picked up his teenage daughter from the mother's house and started to drive home. But his daughter was thirsty, so Mr. Whitaker decided that he was going to stop at a gas station to purchase some water for his daughter. He stopped at a gas station and he and his cousin went inside to purchase some water. As Mr. Whitaker and his cousin returned to the car, a police officer in a police car pulled up and blocked in his car. The police officer got out, pointed a gun at the two men and yelled for them to get on the ground and to put their hands on their heads. With the gun drawn, the officer approached and patted down Mr. Whitaker and ultimately noticed that he was wearing an empty holster. He then handcuffed both of them and then called for assistance. When additional officers arrived, they proceeded to search Mr. Whitaker's car, and they did that without his consent. They asked Mr. Whitaker about the holster, and he did tell them that he had a pistol in his car that was in a lockbox. He also told the officers that he had documentation of his right to possess a concealed carry firearm um, under his D.C. permit, but they simply just ignored that and did not verify any of his documentation. An officer then asked Mr. Whitaker to retrieve the pistol. He found the lockbox in the trunk, retrieved the gun from the lockbox, and then handed it to the police. The police officers then searched Mr. Whitaker's girlfriend and the cousin as well while they were searching the vehicle. His girlfriend did have a small amount of marijuana in her on her purse, uh, but the amount was both legal in D.C. and Maryland, so it wasn't an issue. Mr. Whitaker and his family were detained for a total of three hours before they were eventually released. No arrests were made and no charges were filed against him. However, the police did seize Mr. Whitaker's pistol. After this event, Mr. Whitaker was unable to recover the seized pistol, so he then had to purchase a new handgun and then register that firearm with D.C. 
This ultimately is what triggered the revocation that's at issue here in this case, which has made its way up to the Supreme Court. Registration of a firearm is handled by the Metropolitan PD in D.C. In addition, a person must have a license to carry a pistol in any place other than his dwelling or his place of business. That concealed carry licensing is also handled by the Metropolitan PD. One of the requirements to be granted a carry permit is that the applicant must have complied with all the procedures the police and the chief may have established as a rule. The police department has promulgated a regulation that establishes suitability criteria for an applicant to receive a license to carry concealed. Relevant to this case is one of those vague criteria that was used against Mr. Whitaker. One of those rules states that a person has not exhibited a propensity for violence or instability. And that was then used against Mr. Whitaker to deny him his permit to carry concealed. And again, that whole definition of propensity for violence or instability is not defined whatsoever. It's completely vague and leaves the discretion completely up to the police department. On April 24th, 2019, the police department issued a notice to Mr. Whitaker proposing to revoke his license to carry a pistol. The notice alleged that based on the April incident at the gas station, combined with his past criminal history, that they were going to revoke his license because he showed a propensity for violence or instability. Mr. Whitaker appealed that determination and argued that his past history was found irrelevant when the department initially issued his initial permit. And he also argued that the subsequent event which was being used against him is 100% irrelevant and baseless since the police department never arrested him or he was never charged with anything. He did not violate any laws during that incident. But despite his appeal, ultimately the board upheld the revocation of his license to carry a concealed firearm. After the board upheld his revocation of his license, Mr. Whitaker then appealed that decision up to the D.C. Court of Appeals. The case at that level ended up getting fully briefed despite efforts by the licensing board to get the case remanded back down to them. Then the board issued a notice to the court of voluntary reversal, which stated, after further review, the board has decided to reverse the initial revocation decision and approve Mr. Whitaker's license. The board then moved to dismiss Mr. Whitaker's appeal on the ground that the case was now moot. Ultimately, the Court of Appeals did dismiss Mr. Whitaker's appeal as moot in a two-page order because the board had revoked the prior determination, and ultimately, they did decide to issue him a permit. But Mr. Whitaker did not give up there, and now this case is up for Supreme Court review. He argues first that the Supreme Court needs to review this case because it involves tactical efforts to manufacture mootness to forestall judicial review of gun restrictions, an issue that was previously before the court in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin. Second, he argues this case involves the constitutionality of the regulation that the department invoked to revoke his license. Here, Mr. Whitaker is challenging the vague propensity for violence or instability language that the department used to deny his permit on his renewal. So that is a quick summary of this case and what is at stake. Both of these issues are very important because first, since the recent decision in Bruin, uh, we have seen states like California and New York put in place new standards for when concealed carry permits should be granted. California, for example, will only now try to grant a permit to a person if they are deemed to be a qualified person. New York also put in a new standard of good moral character. And again, that's another subjective morality standard. Although we all know that under Bruin, these subjective standards are 100% impermissible, states are still trying to use them. This case, Whitaker would put an end to those subjective morality standards that states like California and New York are now trying to utilize. But another important thing this case does is it challenges government's efforts to moot a case once they are sued. This is something we have seen happen quite a bit. For example, the first New York State Rifle and Pistol Association case that made its way up to the Supreme Court was found moot because the city changed their laws once they were ultimately sued. 
But in writing that decision, um, there was some dissents by justices like Alito, and Alito in his dissent was joined by other justices. In that dissent, he said, by incorrectly dismissing this case as moot, the court permits our docket to be manipulated in a way that should not be permitted. And just as Justice Alito and others on the court feared, this strategy has been utilized by government agencies and states ever since. Here in this case, Whitaker, the police department issued the permit that they had initially denied once they were ultimately sued by Mr. Whitaker, and it was looking like this was actually going to be appealed and maybe they would even lose the case. This is one of those cases that is very critical, although it does not involve really sexy and big Second Amendment topics like magazine bans or bans on so-called assault weapons. However, if this court does take up this case and issues a favorable ruling, it will greatly hinder current efforts by anti-gunners to restrict our rights. This case would stop current efforts by California and New York, who use subjective morality standards to grant or deny permits, despite what the Supreme Court just said in Bruin. That alone would be a big win. However, this case also would stop efforts by anti-gunners to moot cases whenever they are ultimately sued. So currently, this case is set for Supreme Court conference on September 28th, so that's when the Supreme Court is finally going to come back for their next term. As of right now, the D.C. board has not filed their reply to the petition. I would suspect that the court will require them to file a reply, so that could push back the conference a little bit further. But I wanted to put this case on everyone's radar because this is a case that strikes directly at current anti-gunner strategies that are currently being deployed to violate our rights. This is also going directly against what you're seeing states like California do with their new CCW law and New York as well. So if we get any more updates, I will let you all know. Also, if this video and like support the channel, one of the best ways to do that is to like, comment, and subscribe. All those things help to fuel the algorithm or fuel algorithms with them. It adds fuel to his jet and signals to YouTube that USC value in these videos and in this type of two-way news. Again, I want yeah, to you know, I like, should actually put that. I should actually put that. I would like people to like, comment, and subscribe to my content, so that way, I, you know, they keep my stuff going as well. Now, having said that, I wanted to kind of close today with a little bit of understanding of the situation. President Trump right now is in the position where he's going to have to defend himself. And I'm saying bring it. We've got the defense. Now, in regards to the Espionage Act, they can wordsmith. And they can create things. <sighs> Two-prong statement here. Pertaining to President Trump and elections. Let me get the elections one out of the way. So in the past, when we've conducted coups in other nations... And to convince them that they need our machines and the software to maintain anonymity. We stage things we call hacks. For example, if anyone actually looked and scrutinized into the 2014 elections that we deployed in Ukraine, you will see that the elections stopped counting at night and then they continued the next day and Joe Biden's pick from the quid pro Joe statement earlier was selected. But in the meantime, the pause that happened and the ballots that were fed to meet the algorithm because of the pause, right, of course, uh, they needed to calculate the algorithm and then create the manufactured evidence for it uh, for those that actually took feeder documents because the majority of them are electronic anyway. Um, uh, it was reported that the Russians hacked. Now, one thing I can do is... I can send an email from my house, from my IP, from my computer, and I can make it look like I did it from your phone, from where you're standing right now, sitting on the toilet, listening to me now, in your car, wherever you are. I can make it seem like you sent it because this is how you can manipulate the data. And so... 
Data manipulation isn't something new. WikiLeaks actually showed us in Vault 7. Uh, there were some documents that were um, released and through Brendan's emails that are also on WikiLeaks, you will see that they can actually manufacture and stitch the data to make it look like it's coming from another foreign country. This is a tactic used by the U.S. government in order to create the need for national security and invoke uh, certain laws and discrepancies uh, in regards to the discrepancies they have in actually being forthcoming with information they put under the guise of national security because they're very the very information that they're presenting you is also manufactured. The same thing we saw with the DNC hack, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they can attribute hacks to foreign nations. Also, they can attribute many things to anybody. And there is there lies another problem. Obviously, checking it, you can see, uh, you know, data transfer. You can actually forensically see if you're allowed to, that it is all manufactured. So the question one would ask when it comes to elections is, I'd like to see the hacks that DHS said were Russian because you said it was a threat. Show me. Show it to me and give me the code. Let me see it. They won't. Now, in regards to the Espionage Act, again, we have to remember that if they decide to further classify a document that he has in his possession, but they classified it after the fact or before the fact or didn't tell him of the fact or anything, they can box him in. Now, he's out looking for attorneys, and this is one of the greatest strategies I believe um, exists, yet it hurts me to say. Uh, you know, Republicans had made the deal that he is not allowed to run. This was the plan. The same party that he has been thumping, here was their plan. And that will all come out. All those communications will come out. And this is how you destroy a two-party system government, by showing the people exactly what they're doing and how they're doing it. Because now they're leaking out how there's no attorney that wants to cover him. John Sale, who was a former Watergate prosecutor, uh, and now he's in Florida, defense attorney, uh, he turned down representing President Trump. And he actually said, you have to evaluate whether you want to take it. It's not like a DUI. It's uh, representing a former president. And this is one of the highest visibility cases, and it has to do with espionage. A uh, spokesman, apparently, for President Trump, called Taylor Budowich, um, you know, defended the quality of the uh, president's legal team, noting that, you know, it includes uh, Evan Cor Corcoran, uh, who represented um, Steve Bannon um, against, you know, the DOJ, James Trusty. You know, uh, these are all big things. The lead counsel in relation to the rate of his home is Jim Trusty and um, uh, Evan Corcoran right now. And they have a ton of prosecutorial experience. So he's good. But he's also represented by some of the strongest attorneys in the country. While um, Trusty and Corcoran actually submitted filings, other attorneys um, have been tasked with uh, making his case public. Uh, you know, like Christina and, and Alina, they're out there talking about it. All the attorneys are. And so a lot of people you know, uh, don't seem to understand the gravity of the situation. Remember, Alina, along with Peter Tickton, are working on the RICO case against, 
you know, Hillary Clinton, the DNC, and many others. Uh, <laughs> and it's quite interesting that, um, you know, they're all laughing at the fact that he has, he's on his seventh or eighth legal team. I can tell you from my personal experience, there's a lot of attorneys that pretend to be on your side and they're not, you know, they're all about making a name for themselves and, or, uh, you know, trying to get another opportunity that's more solid for them. That'll give them some five minutes of fame. Uh, I'm, I'm not president Trump and I've experienced that. So, you know, imagine being president Trump. So while Maggie, you know, hold on to her, you know, safe doll, uh, laughing at the fact that he's had seven to eight different legal teams represent him. One thing that she underestimates is that there are a lot of people that are consultants for legal teams and that the legal uh, uh, minds that he has that actually are surrounding him are pretty loyal to the U.S. Constitution, not to the president, but to the U.S. Constitution. And they will fight until their last breath to have the truth come out. Now, we talked about NARA when no one was talking about it. Now everybody wants to talk about it, and it's like you're so lame. Because the National Archives, remember, are heading off to be privatized. Remember that? And so the question lies, and they could say whatever they want now that they're privatized because Barack Obama manages his, Bush manages his. But who's managing President Trump's? And why did the EO that Barack Hussein Obama signed you know, uh, five minutes after getting into office only apply to him? How does it not apply to the president of the United States where it clearly depicts that they're not allowed to make public any of the records? I mean, if we read Obama's actual EO, everything that they're doing to President Trump right now is not allowed according to that EO. So it makes you wonder what their real ultimate goal is. Now, Tomorrow we'll have a lot more to talk about because a lot of things are going to be coming out. But in the meantime, the almost $1 trillion bill, $740 billion for climate, taxes, and health. They are squeezing us dry. It is the most insane thing. But, you know, with a rebel cry... Oh, wait, wait. With a rebel yell, she cried, don't give up the fight. So don't give up the fight. It, the fight, the ball is in our court. You just don't see it. I'm pointing out what's the most important and what we're going to be finding out very, very soon. The one thing that you will see is sometimes you just have to let people pull their own pants down. 